You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey guys, it's good to see you guys. My name's Joe, one of the leaders here. If you're new with us, love to connect with you afterwards. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again this evening. So we should be in Luke chapter 13. Uh, We're going to be in verses 31 through 35 tonight. And as we dive back into uh, the Gospel of Luke, I kind of want to frame our conversation based around four words. And and I kind of, I'm hoping that it'll help kind of get the creative, maybe thinking juices flowing in my prayer. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will just really use these four words to kind of frame this entire message and frame the text that we're going to be in, okay? So those four words, commitment, mission, motivation, compassion. If you would just write those four words, down. Commitment, mission, motivation, and compassion. Like what happens in your heart and in your mind when you hear those four words? Just think about it for a minute. What happens in your heart and your mind when you hear those four words? What what, what happens? What what do you think of when you think about Jesus' commitment towards you? Like, Like I want you to attach these four words, not necessarily to just you personally, but to Jesus, to your relationship between you and Jesus. You think about the way you see him, the way you think about him, the way you feel about Jesus, what happens inside of your mind when you think about Jesus' commitment towards you? Do you, do you really trust him? Do you really believe in him? Or do, do you see him maybe as a parent or a friend that abandoned you? When, you? when you think of the mission or the agenda of Jesus, like when he walks into the room, he has a mission and an agenda for the time that he's with you, right? And what does that mission or that agenda look like as you think about it? What does it cause you to think about? Do do you believe that he has come to save you and to serve you? Or or do you struggle with maybe wondering, maybe just wondering, if you're being taken advantage of by some man-made religious system or not? When you think of what motivated, when you think of what motivated Jesus, like do you you see him as as a selfless and sacrificial savior? Do you, do you question his goodness? Do you question God's goodness towards you? Or do you see him as selfless, sacrificial type of person? When you think of his compassion, when you think of the compassion of Christ, what do you think of? Do you get consumed with gratitude because of his compassionate goodness towards you? Or are you like really suspicious of God? Are you suspicious about God and do you maybe have a hard time believing that God is anything but an angry father who sits on the throne in heaven and like drops fireballs on people that he hates? Are you suspicious of him? Maybe you think maybe he's just an angry father who's really disappointed in you all the time and you don't see him as a father in heaven who is singing songs of joy over you because of what Christ did at the cross. I want to be honest and say that you guys know that like for me, I'm just like the rest of you. I struggle with some of these things like on a daily, moment by moment, hour by hour basis. I think that's the reason that this portion of scripture and this text, this passage for us this week is so vital, so important because in it, I think what's happening is we can be encouraged kind of by the, the portrait, if you will, the portrait of Christ. Do you, you think of a, a portrait being a, a fancy or, or really expensive picture that was painted with a lot of care 
on a wall. You think of that portrait. And in this text, we kind of see a portrait of Christ's commitment towards us. We see a portrait of his missional agenda to save you and I from that which is killing us on a daily basis. We see a portrait of Christ's sacrificial and, and selfish motivation, right? We, we see these portraits of, of Christ's compassionate anguish. When you think of that word anguish, when you think of compassion and attach it to the anguish of the cross and what happened at the cross when he died. If this story is true, his compassion took him so far that he would face the agony and the anguish of the cross for you and for I. And that's part of the portrait that we see in this text as we studied out in verses 31 through 35 of chapter 13. Let's read it. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. The third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Philip Ryken, when he commented on this passage and, and this set of scriptures, says in these verses we see our Savior working to finish his calling with a heart full of compassion. In other words, Jesus came to give himself as a sacrificial ransom at the cross so that, so that we, you and I, so that we could all have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to be victorious over death. He came to be victorious over death through the empty tomb so that we could be redeemed from the bonds of sin that, that seek to keep us like locked in a cave of death and dark decay. And Jesus came to receive a beating, a really nasty beating on his back and all over his body so that we could be healed from the effects of sin. Jesus came as a conquering king. He came as a conquering king so that we could be set free from, from all of the clutches of demonic power that, that seek to get their grip on us. Jesus came to do all of this with a heart full of compassion, with a heart full of compassion that kept him focused on the work of the mission in front of him. Somebody say amen to that. Like this is the reason Jesus came. This is the Jesus that we preach. This is the Jesus that Luke is painting portraits of. And my hope and my prayer is that this like grips your heart and your soul, that this grips your mind this evening as you hear this text preached, that you leave this place, that if you're hearing this, that you, you're not the same after hearing this. That's my prayer and my hope. 
I wholeheartedly agree with what Riken is saying. His assessment of this passage, I think, is spot on. Because I think that what Luke is doing, like I said, is he's continuing to paint these portraits of Jesus so that we can be certain of the compassion of Christ that motivates his commitment to his mission, which is to seek and to save that which was lost, those who are lost. In other words, in other words, Luke writes about these three things. Should be the next slide for you guys in the back. He writes about basically what the Pharisees say to Jesus. He also writes about what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And then he also writes about what Jesus says about Jerusalem. And in all of this, Jesus is driving home this simple fact that Jesus is completely committed to his mission. And he's, and he's motivated by his compassion for you and I. He's He's totally committed to that mission. Nothing's going to get him off of center. Nothing's going to get him to stop doing what he came to do. Like you and me, we stop doing things, right? We, we, we get interested in something and we start doing it and, and later we find out, oh, that wasn't as cool as we once thought it was and so we run from it and we decide to do something different. So that's, that's not commitment. Jesus was totally committed to his mission. His mission had yours and mine's face on it. That was his mission, was to seek and to save that which was lost. And his, his compassion is what drove him. It's what motivated him. You and I, like, we get motivated in some pretty weird, funky ways. We get motivated because we want attention. We, got, we get motivated because we see an opportunity for us to express ourselves. Uh, we, we get motivated because we see these uh, opportunities to make a buck or to get ahead, Right? We get, we get motivated because maybe we find that place where we just feel like we fit for a while. Jesus' motivation was compassion. It was motivated by his compassion towards you and I. So look at verse 31. Look at verse 31 as we <coughs> kind of unpack what, uh, what we see the Pharisees saying to Jesus. Luke begins to explain in verse 31 what the Pharisees say to him. And he, and he starts off by saying, he starts off by saying, at that very hour some Pharisees came. Now think about this phrase. Think about this opening line of the way Luke begins this portrait or this episode. As he does it, at that very hour the Pharisees came. When Luke uses this phrase for us, when he uses this phrase, at that very hour, he is basically saying, in those moments. You could write that underline there. In those moments, which really should lead us to ask right now, in this moment, what was happening in those moments? What was happening in that very hour when Luke wrote this? Because when Luke wrote that, he wanted to draw our attention to what was taking place in those moments when the Pharisees came to say something to Jesus. And just a quick review of chapter 13. We're not going to have time to bounce all the way through it, but some of you that have been with us, you'll remember this. If you haven't been with us and this is your first time, man, check it out afterwards or just glance back through chapter 13 as I start my way back basically at the beginning of 13 and work my way through carefully somewhat from memory and a few notes that I have in front of me. A careful review of chapter 13 informs us that, that Jesus has been preaching and teaching and inviting people to respond to his call to repent or perish. There's harsh language for you. There's some crazy language. Repent or perish. Turn around or fall off the cliff. Keep going the way you're going and burn up or turn around. Follow me. Jesus has been calling people to respond to that message. He's also been calling them to respond to become people whose lives 
uh, become characterized by the, by the production or the produce of godly fruit in their lives. To be people who've been set free from what disables us. To be people who are part of the kingdom of God by, by entering through the narrow door, which is Christ. And also to become members of the household of the family of God. It's in these very moments. It's in these very moments that Jesus has been speaking that the Pharisees come and they say something. It's interesting to see where the Pharisees' hearts are in this moment, at this very time, at this very hour. They come to speak to Jesus. And from what Luke says here in this portion of the text, it should be like an eye-opener for us. We should all be prompted to ask ourselves this question. Where is my heart in this very moment, right now. Not yesterday, not at camp when you were 15, not last week in Sunday service. Right now, in this moment, where is your heart? Where is my commitment? What mission am I pursuing? What motivates me to come to Jesus? Does the compassion of Christ towards me produce compassion in me? These are questions we could all be asking ourselves. I believe the purpose of these first few words of our passage is basically to remind us this, to remind us that, that in this moment, a decision must be made right now, in this very hour, in this very moment. Decisions must be made, and the Pharisees made theirs. Look at this. Verse 31, the latter half, notice Notice that when the Pharisees come to Jesus, they say, get away from here. Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Like, watch out, the dude's coming after you. Like, he's got an AK, he's got a posse, he's coming to get you. Watch out. Dude's bad news. Don't want to mess with him. This is King Herod, yo. Like, get it? <laughs> this is the king. Be like me calling up Eric and be like, yo, dude, Obama's out coming to get you. Uh, not only Anyways, <laughs> who else could I use? <laughs> Get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Move on. Just ask this question as we move on. Okay. To whom do you think the Pharisees are really loyal to? Who do you think? Who do you think they were really loyal to? Who, who were they committed to? What, what mission do you think the Pharisees were actually on right now in this moment as they're coming to Jesus with this quote-unquote warning? Watch out, Herod's going to come kill you, buddy. Yeah, what do you think? You think they were really genuine? You think they were really authentic? Are they really coming to Jesus because of their compassionate love towards him? They really experience the compassion of Christ in such a way that they are now genuinely and compassionately concerned for Jesus' well-being. The answer I think we all know is no. No, no, not, not the Pharisees. We do know from studying scripture that there are some in the Pharisee camp and some in the Sadducee camp, different types of religious leaders. Be like saying, uh, Baptists and Lutherans. There were some in each of those camps that knew Jesus and there were some that definitely don't. I think the general feel is that these Pharisees in this passage, uh, these were not ones who loved Jesus. Okay? Based upon the context that we've seen over the last 
chapter, the context would tell us that these Pharisees, as they came to Jesus, they weren't loyal to him in any way. As I observe the Pharisees and what they say to Jesus in verse 31, I, I struggle a ton to believe at all that they had any commitment towards Christ. I struggle to believe at all that the Pharisees were even close to being on the same mission as he was. But I think the scholars have it right when they say this. Most of the scholars on this text, on this portion, they say that these Pharisees were pretending to be concerned about Herod's threat to kill Jesus while being completely blind to what was actually killing them. Catch that. Don't miss that. These guys were pretending to be concerned about Herod's threat to kill Jesus, but they were completely and utterly blind to what was killing them. So it's an indicator of pharisaical heart. Why does, why, why does Luke record this? Why does Luke record it this way right here? Why does he write this here? Why does he write to us about what the Pharisees say to Jesus? I think Luke explains what the Pharisees say to Jesus because he wants us to see that Jesus is committed to his mission. He wants us to see that Jesus is not only committed to his mission, but he's also motivated by his compassion. It stands in, in striking contrast to the Pharisees when we learned that the Pharisees really weren't committed to Christ's mission. They weren't motivated to Christ-like compassion. In this very hour, in this very moment, where are you? Are you committed to Christ? Are you part of his mission? Are there godly motivations growing within your heart and in your life? Are you growing in Christ-like compassion? You're gonna hear me say this over and over and over again throughout this message. Jesus is committed to his mission and he's motivated by his compassion for you and for me. How are you challenged by that portrait of Christ? But in verses 32 to 33, look, look back at those verses, we see what Jesus then says to the Pharisees in return to what they said to him. Luke tells us in these verses that Jesus says that Herod is a fox. I love that part. Jesus calls Herod a fox. Jesus calls the king of that area a fox. And it may not sink in yet. It may not sink in yet. He called him a fox. He basically calls him a fox. He tells him that his work is not finished yet. He also tells him, Herod's not going to kill me. I have to be honest. I have to be honest and just say that for me, like if someone puts a death threat out on my life, somebody puts a hit out on my life, like this is language I'm not foreign to. Like I'm used to the language, it makes sense. But if somebody puts out a hit on my life, I'm gonna go hide in a cave, okay? I think of David, I'm much more like David. I'm gonna go hide in a stinking cave and I'm gonna, I'm gonna whine and cry and you're gonna hear it and you're gonna see all my psalms written about it, okay? That's, that's David, that's me. Jesus, Jesus is different. Jesus is so much better than David. He's so much better than me. If you guys haven't figured that out yet, revelation time. Jesus is good. Like in these moments, he's really good. I love his response. I love the way he basically is like, uh, number one, Herod's a fox. Number two, number two, Herod ain't Jack. And number three, I'm gonna continue what I got going on. Number, like number four, like Herod, let me say it again, Herod's not gonna kill me. It's not gonna happen. <coughs> 
First things Jesus says, the Pharisees say, here's a fox. Look at, look at verses 32 33. When Jesus says, go and give that fox a message, go and give that fox a message from him, he's basically calling the Pharisees and King Herod both all out on the carpet. He's calling their bluff. Jesus isn't just merely shedding light on the bluff and the shenanigans of the Pharisees. He's not just, he's not just shedding light on these guys' misplaced commitments, their selfish agendas, their ungodly motives, just their false compassion. Jesus is also taking Herod and he's putting him in his place. He's doing both. Puts him in his place by calling him a fox. He basically pointed out that Herod and his little pack of pharisaical minions are no more of a threat to his commitment to his mission than a sly little fox who lurks around in the dark shadows. Oh, you think about the contrast of the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah named Jesus. That's my Jesus. I hope he's your Jesus. I hope you serve him too. I hope you've been saved by him too. Because what the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, what he does is when somebody puts a death threat out on his life, when somebody talks trash about him, when somebody slanders his name, when somebody says things that hurt him, what Jesus does, he's like, you ain't nothing but a fox. A sly, little, deceptive flux running around in the shadows, talking your trash, saying your things. You ain't crap. I'm the king. That's who I am. It's a contrast because there's other language Jesus could have used to have described a king. And the other language he could have used that some may have used because King Herod was ruthless. Let's not forget that King Herod did and was very responsible for murdering in cold blood Jesus' best friend, cousin, John the Baptist. Same Herod. Hey, you go back and you study that. Why did King Herod kill John the Baptist? Lobbed off his head in public, why? Because John the Baptist publicly called him out for his sin. Publicly called Herod out for his sin. Herod had him murdered. They were supposed to be friends as well. And Jesus is like, and I know you. You could use lion to describe you, but I'll reserve that for myself. I'll call you a fox. You ain't nothing. Called him a fox to begin with. The Lion of Judah was calling this earthly king a second-rate, insignificant, powerless little fox. I love it. I love the picture of Jesus that it paints for me. It, it helps me grow bold. It, it helps give me comfort. It, it helps me press back against those things in the darkness that seek to devour me or seek to hold me down or seek to destroy me. When I see a picture of my King Jesus like that, man, I, I feel like I just come alive. The second thing that, that Jesus says to the Pharisees is that his work isn't finished yet. After calling Herod an insignificant, second-rate, powerful fox, Jesus continues his response to these false concerns of the Pharisees. Can't find the hole in my cup, sorry. There it is. <laughs> Verse 32 says, Behold, 
And when somebody says behold in, in the scriptures, it's like basically saying take notice or be informed. Behold, I'm putting a sign up on the wall to let you know. I'm writing this down in big letters. Behold, take notice, be informed. I cast out demons. I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Another way of rephrasing what Jesus says here would be to say this. Go tell Herod, that little stinky fox, go tell that guy that I'm not afraid of his empty threats. I'm not afraid of his empty threats because he can't make good on it. I'm not afraid of his empty threats because he should also take notice. He should take notice that my work of crushing demonic strongholds and providing the cure for sin isn't finished yet. When was it finished? It was finished on the cross. Jesus knew this. He knew that someday he would hang on a cross after being brutalized for you and I, being a sinless person who was, being perfect, the thing that you and I could never, ever, ever hope to do. We have no hope in ourselves whatsoever. No matter how much you or I think we will get it straight tomorrow, here's what's going to happen. You and I, we will fail tomorrow, but what Jesus did is he got it perfect and he went to the cross he was a sinless sacrifice and on that cross he said it is finished what do you think was finished the debt was paid the payment was made the ransom was put in the bank and you and I were set free that's what was finished right there free from depression free from anger free from sin free from all those things that haunt you free from it all free from your failures you're going to fail tomorrow great when you fail you can say it is finished because my king finished the race and he didn't give up though he had death threats against him though he had this stupid little king that thought he was something when he was nothing coming after him he did didn't stop because it wasn't finished yet. When would it get finished? On the third day, right? That's when it would be completed. Actually completed on the cross. That's when your ransom was paid. Completely finished on that third day when he came out of that tomb, beating death completely. One thing coming for each of you and I, death. Question for you and I is what happens after that? You cease to exist? That sucks. That sucks. If that's what we believe. Jesus is committed to his mission and he's motivated by his compassion for you, for me. Third thing, third thing that Jesus says to these Pharisees is that Herod isn't coming to kill him. First, he's like, first, dude, you're a fox. Second, my mission ain't completed yet. Not finished. Third, you ain't killing me. I don't know who you think you are, but you're not killing me. This is, this is what Jesus is saying. These showdowns between Jesus and the Pharisees, you can tell. You can tell. It always gets my blood boiling. Now, you want to see me, like, lose all sorts of sweat, spit and sputter, and then go home and pass out because I, I wore myself out? This is where it happens. I love these showdowns. They remind me of the Westerns I love to watch. Right, Andrew? We love Westerns, man. Ah, oh, I, I, I love to watch an old Clint Eastwood Western when he walks out in the middle of the street, and those bad guys have been there, and they've been harassing that town for a long time, and Clint Eastwood walks out there, and he just like, come on, guys, and he just blows them all away. I love that. Like, John Wayne... I love old westerns, and that's the way I always see these. It's, it's always the same. The Pharisees make their play. They lay their cards on the table, 
and Jesus, Jesus basically gives him the usual smackdown that you would expect from the king of the kings and the lord of lords. He just smacks it down, lays it down, boom, drops the mic, walks off the stage. That's Jesus. I just love that about him. He's, he's not a pussyfooting around anything kind of a guy. He's not, the portraits that you and I see about Jesus are like long flowing hair, looking longingly up towards heaven with these like crazy deep blue eyes and freakishly pale skin for a guy who was a Nazarite, right? The portraits we see about Jesus are strange, but when you read the, the gospel accounts as the, the gospel authors write these stories and paint their portraits of Jesus, man, we see, we, we see a bro, like, like a brotato. Like, <laughs> any of you were sleeping, you're awake now. We see a big man who's not afraid. He's not afraid. Did he face fear? Yes. And we'll see that later. And catch a glimpse right now in these moments. Catch a glimpse of the Garden of Gethsemane later, those of you that know the scriptures. And he is, he is agonizing over the cross that's about to come in the next few days. And he's, he's, he's sweating blood because he's in anguish because of his compassion, his commitment to his mission for you and I. Verse 33, before moving on to his lament over Jerusalem here in just a moment. <clears throat> says this very simple and profound thing. Look at it, verse 33. Jesus says, nevertheless, or another way to say it would be, regardless of what you think you can do, nevertheless. It's like today we see on Facebook, like, whatever. Like, whatever already, regardless of what you think you can do, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, regardless of what Herod or the Pharisees thought, said, or did, Jesus would be pursuing his mission with com committed compassion until he died in Jerusalem. He knew. He knew that Herod wasn't going to kill him. He knew that his place to die was in Jerusalem. That's why he set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't hiding from Herod. He wasn't running from Herod. He wasn't afraid of Herod. He wasn't, he wasn't looking for a different place to go so that life would be easier for him. Jesus was headed to a place of certain death because his face was set towards Jerusalem, the place, place of suffering, the predestined place of his suffering for you. And, and let me just say that. It's personal. Insert your name. His place of suffering for you. His place of suffering for Abe. His, his place of suffering for Harley. His place of suffering for Eric. His place of suffering for Christy. His place of suffering for Michael. His place of suffering for you personally. That's where he had his face set. The picture in his pocket was of you. His compassion he was committed to was to you. Verses 34-35, and we see that what Jesus says about Jerusalem now. What happens in these verses, in these final verses? Jesus' tone shifts. Like his tone completely shifts from like a prophetic rebuke. You might frame this in your mind. You might write this down for a minute. Like his tone shifts from a prophetic rebuke of the king and these Pharisees to like more of a prophetic lament. Instead of a prophetic rebuke, it's prophetic lament. Uh, we, we see like the fullness of, of Jesus' 
emotions right here in this text. Luke, Luke is painting this portrait in ways so that we can see all these pieces of who Jesus is. Much like Jeremiah. Much like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who, if you ever read him, he was known as the wailing or the weeping prophet. In these final moments, Jesus moves from heroic and, and like bold confrontation of sinful opposition to, to this emotional and, and heartfelt and compassionate lament over the spiritual condition of his people and his nation. Spurgeon, you guys know that I love Spurgeon. Had a couple of quotes from Spurgeon in this, in my notes at one point. I took all of them out except for this one, because this one I think brings home this final thing. It's not, it's not up here on the slide, so you have to just listen real close and not fall asleep. Okay, listen. Pay attention. Charles Spurgeon wanted to help explain like, like the depths of Jesus' lament, the anguish of Jesus' lament in these final couple of verses. He wanted to help us uh, to understand maybe the spiritual condition of Jerusalem in this sermon that he preached. And the, the, the title of the sermon that he preached is called Jer Jerusalem the Guilty. I think of preaching that title as he preached this text. He preached on July 13th of 1916. And I want you to listen to what Spurgeon says and I want you to see how this comes home for you and I. He used this illustration of a friend, someone that he used to know that had fallen from grace, much like Jerusalem in our text. And I want you to wait and listen and watch for one of the, the final thing that Spurgeon says, because he frames this so well. He says this. He preached the gospel. He seemed to preach it with intense sincerity. At any rate, there was such fervor in his manner that zeal seemed to animate his heart. His words moved many. Souls were converted under his ministry. Souls that shall make glad the angels of God throughout eternity. He comforted the saints. And many disciples were refreshed by his discourses. But, but, in an evil hour he turned aside. His fall was precipitate. The sink was abysmal. Of drunkards, he became one of the worst. Of swearers, the most profane. Amongst licentious, the most lewd. No slave of Satan more in earnest to destroy himself and to do his black master's bidding than that same man who once ministered at the altar of God and appeared to be a star in the right hand of Christ. And why? Why may not such a collapse occur to me? Why may not it occur to thee, my brothers? Every man, it has well been said, has not a soul of crystal whereby other men can read his actions. Thou lookest fair. Thou seemest to be a saint. Yet there may be a worm. There may be a worm in the center of thy fair plant after all. Sudden death often surprises those who appear to be in sound health, though slow disease has long been sapping the strength of their system. Be not deceived by appearances. Make sure of thy salvation. Jerusalem killed 
prophets. And Jerusalem was once thought of to be like the center. It was once thought to be the center of all things great in terms of religious activity. This is the place of holiness. This is the place you would go to seek refuge, to find relief. But Jerusalem had shifted and changed. It was no longer that city that was shining on a hill for all the world to see. It was no longer that city of glorious presence of God. It was now a city that was known for its murder of those who preached the word of God and spoke the truth. Jesus actually says in verse 34, he says, you have become the city, kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. Reminds me of another city called Nineveh. Nineveh, right? And we might remember Sodom and Gomorrah being a bad town at once too, right, in the Old Testament. Jesus somewhere in the scriptures, though I don't remember where, says, man, it's gonna be worse for you be worse for you than it would be for those from Sodom and Gomorrah, from Nineveh. In fact, the people from Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, they will rise up in judgment against this generation. It's Jesus' words. Jerusalem had fallen so far from grace. What a picture of where our hearts can be. Though one day we can appear and seem to have some things together. The very next day, jump headlong off that cliff and give our souls back to the one who's most likely controlled us the entire time. Continues in verse 34. <coughs> Jesus speaking in what really appears to be a deep and anguishing lament, M- much like a mother crying over her wayward children. You think of it, if you're a parent, you think of your children, you want the best for them. You want them to follow the path you have laid out for them. You want them to go the direction you've been training them to go. You want them to find good. You don't want them to fall into harm. Cries out like a mother who cries over her wayward children. And he says, basically he says, I've tried to gather you all. I've tried to, tried to gather you all together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. My mom used to raise chickens and ducks and dogs and peacocks and uh, horses and I, you know, the list goes on. Salamanders, we had salamanders with frogs too. Turtles, turtles, we had turtles. We had a zoo. We had a zoo. How many of us? Like what, 60-some barnyard animals after she died that we had to sell. Was re- How do you relocate 60-some barnyard animals when you don't know anybody who likes barnyard animals? Um, and, and none of them, none, you couldn't turn them into a steak either, so it just, you know, it wasn't. Anyways, um, where was I? Hen. We raised baby chickens. And it was always interesting seeing these, these mama chickens would come out and they literally, they, they would, when it started raining or hailing outside, they would come up to, the, to, to its babies and it would, put out, it would put out their wings like this and it would start like doing this funky little chicken dance and like little circles and trying to, to call the babies under their wings. So, uh, a, a mother's wings had these really thick feathers. The feathers, the quills on those feathers were a lot thicker and it protected those babies from what was coming to harm them. And Jesus simply saying, man, I've tried to gather you in, but you were unwilling. No matter how much I came around you and tried to pull you into the fold so that I could be your shepherd, you were unwilling. You were unwilling and it breaks my heart. This is what Jesus is saying as he says these things. 
who are unwilling to look to Jesus for their salvation, their refuge, or their rest. We invite our music team to come forward as I try to land this plane and get it home. <coughs> Verse 35, as we slide into the runway, so to speak. Verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, behold, he says it again. It's twice now, right? Behold, take notice, be informed. I've written it down on a piece of paper. I've put it on the wall. I made, a, I made a poster out of it, and I put it on the wall for you. Behold, take notice, be informed. Your house is forsaken. That's a scary word from Jesus. You refused. You were unwilling to come under my shepherding. You, you were unwilling to name me as your king. You were unwilling to bend your knee. You were unwilling to, to say, Jesus, I need you. And the only thing that I can do in my life is make a bigger wreck of it. And so I really need you. You were unwilling to do that. Unwilling to come under my wing. Therefore, your house is forsaken. I, I'm convinced that Jesus said some of the harshest things in history for us to wrestle with. Again, this portrait of Jesus that Luke paints. Now you go back and you look at these words. This is not just my opinion. These are clear words of Scripture, what Jesus is saying. Your house is forsaken. In other words, Jesus says this, is that God rejects all who reject Jesus. God rejects all who reject Jesus. Moves on, calls Jerusalem out for their spiritual blindness. At the very end of this text, he says, you will not see me. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's saying, if you're not gonna if you're not going to admit, if you're not going to admit and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is Jesus, if that's something you can't say, you won't see me. Some scholars believe this is alluding to the, to the end time when Jesus comes back. That there is, a, that there is a, a portrait in the midst of all this portraitizing, right? That there is a piece of this portrait which points uh, eschatologically or towards the end when Jesus comes back on that horse sword out of the mouth lightning bolts out of the eyes right uh, clothes drenched in blood big fat horse or something and like a tattoo on his leg that says uh, king of kings and lord of lords there's something pointing to that and in that passage it talks about when that day happens every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is lord even if you didn't confess it here this side of eternity, you'll still confess it then. The difference is, is that in that time, it's not a saving confession, it's a horrific confession. Oh my God, I missed it. That's the difference. That's the difference. And in this, Jesus is crying out because that's not what he wants. He's committed to his mission. He's motivated by compassion for you and for me. How are you just being challenged in these moments? Where is your heart in this very moment? Where is your commitment? What mission are you pursuing? What agenda is on your heart and mind? What, what motivates you to come to Jesus? Does compassion of Christ towards you produce compassion in you? In these final moments, I want to extend an invitation to anyone here. Anybody here, if you would say, man, I'm not following Jesus. I, I don't do this this way very often but if you're here and you're saying I'm not following Jesus my hope is that right now the challenge is for you to say yes I want to follow Jesus from this moment forward and that that would change your life I can ask you to raise your hand it's between you and God you should know 
And if you're, you've not been following Jesus, that's an invitation to you. So follow him. It's to simply say to him, Jesus, you are God. I want to recognize you and say, blessed are you, O King of kings and Lord of lords. I've been a fox, right? I've been like Jerusalem. And I need you, Jesus, to save me. That's what happens in your heart in these moments. Then Jesus saves you, but you trust in him and you believe that only in him do you find what you need. Maybe you'd follow Jesus in these moments because you recognize the blackness of the worm of sin deep within your heart and soul. Maybe you follow him because you see this portrait of Christ's sinless and compassionate sacrifice on your behalf. Maybe you follow him now because you are struck down from your high place by this portrait of Christ who came from his high place in heaven. He came from a place that was perfect. He didn't need to leave there, but he chose to. It was a plan for him to come from there, to come here to this nasty, messy place to save you and I. The opportunity is for you to believe in him, to trust in him, and to be saved now in this moment. <coughs> if you're here, if you're here and you've said yes to Jesus, whether it was 47 years ago or whether it was 47 seconds ago, if you said yes to Jesus, then the other invitation to, for you is to join us in communion. It's our way of celebrating together as a church family, as Christians, the work of the cross and the work of Jesus. It's our way of remembering the work that he did for us. We do this because we are physically and basically spiritually celebrating this truth that Jesus went to the cross. His body was torn and it was beaten. His blood flowed like a river. And he did this for you and he did it for I. Why? Because he is committed to his mission and he's motivated by his compassion for you and for me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time in our text tonight. Pray, God, there were some here that were saved. I pray that everyone was challenged and yet encouraged. I pray, God, that we all just saw like a huge portrait picture of Jesus who is so committed to his mission because of his compassion, which motivated him to go to the cross. Thank you that you finished your race. I pray that you would call people to you, save us, change us radically, I pray. Jesus' name. Everybody said? You stand with us and worship. There'll be a few here near the front to serve communion. If you'd like to engage that with us, you don't have to be a member of the church. Just gotta say yes to Jesus. There'll also be a few of us. I'll be here. And I think Brandon or Eric will be over here. We'll be here just to pray with you. If you have needs, please come to us. We'd love to pray for you. Thanks for letting me preach, guys. I love you. See you next week. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.